Well, good evening. If you would open with me your copies of Scripture to Ezra chapter 10. We're going to be looking at this last chapter. Made it to the end of of another book. A book that has been quite joyful for me, uh, for us to go through. Um, As many of you know, this is a very uh, personal, uh, the name is very personal for me. It's the name of our first son, Ezra means helper or help. And so as we enter into the book of Ezra, let's go to him now and ask our help. Our Lord, we do thank you that we can draw near to you as we draw near to your word and seek your help. You inspired this word long ago by your spirit through your prophet. Lord, we confess we need your spirit now to help us to open our eyes to see your truth. Father, we pray now that you would guide us in your truth, that we would praise your awesome and holy name, Lord, that we would be confronted in our sin, that we'd be comforted in our suffering, Lord, and that we might have hope in the days to come. Father, we, we do give you all the thanks and the praise this evening. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of our God from Ezra 10. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the people of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and the Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if, they, uh, that if anyone should not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders, all his property shall be forfeited and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the twelfth, the twentieth day of the month. And all the people sat in open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith. 
and married, for, married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now, when, now then, make confession to the Lord and the God of your fathers, and do His will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so, we must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open, nor is this this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Ashel, and Jazeah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this. Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levites, supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra, the priest, selected men, heads of the father's houses, according to their father's houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to end of all the men who had married foreign women. Now there were found some of the, of the, the sons of the priests who had married foreign women. Uh, uh, Maasiah and Eliezer, Jerob and Gedaliah, some of the sons of Jeshua and the sons of Josadak and his brothers. They pledged themselves to put away their wives, and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock for their guilt. So far, the reading of God's word. As we step back into Ezra 10, there is a great deal of history that has come before this chapter, and I, and I hope if you've been here every week uh, that this book has been of good encouragement to you. God has delivered his people out of exile from Babylon so that they might reinstitute the public worship of Yahweh, that they might rebuild the temple. And we see they they did that very thing. After some difficulty, they have rebuilt the altar and rebuilt the temple. Everything seemed to be going well. They were worshiping Yahweh. But then Ezra, the scribe from the priestly line, returned to the land to teach the people the law, what it means to obey him. And what he had found was that the people had sinned grievously, they had turned to worldliness. As Pastor Jeff pointed out last week, the matter of foreign wives was not one of racial discrimination. It was not that, that these surrounding nations were lesser than the Israelites. It's that these were of spiritually different place. As the, the New Living Transla- Translation helpfully takes this, this word for foreign, it's, these are pagan wives meaning that they, were, that they were spiritually those who might tempt the people of Israel away from worship of God and undermine their great mission to be a distinctive people, a people who worshipped Yahweh alone and, and lived in obedience to His law. It's for this reason that Ezra 9 records the prayer of Ezra, 
about the compromise, about the complacency of Israel with their sin. The question we were left with last time, at the end of chapter 9, is how will Israel respond? Will, will they confess their sin or will they become complacent? Will they continue in their complacency? The response of the people to Ezra's prayer here in chapter 10 indicates something critical for us as well. God's people always have a choice put before them. Will we resign ourselves to a culture of complacency with sin, or will we become a culture of confession? We can be a culture of confession, one that that deals with our sin before God, or we can be a culture of complacency and treat worldliness as an insignificant matter, something that, that doesn't really need to be talked about and isn't worth our time. This is not just a call to the exiles of old, but for us as well. And I hope it becomes clear tonight that we can develop a culture of true confession as we follow the lead of our high priest Jesus. That's the life-transforming truth for tonight. We can develop a culture of confession as we follow our high priest Jesus. This gospel hope that we, have, that we can have for our church comes out as we examine Israel's culture in response to Ezra and his leadership. The first thing to highlight about Ezra's culture is the four marks of genuine repentance. That's the first thing we see with their culture. Look with me again at verse 1. It says, while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. We see uh, that the Hebrew here is is quite literally wept very bitterly, greatly. Their their mourning was was loud. We see in verse 9 also that they are trembling because of what they've done. They, They are grieving over their sin. The gravity of their betrayal breaks their hearts and leads them into serious turmoil. You ever been to a point when you've been so grieved by something that you've done that you have been led to trembling, shaking, out of sadness, out of remorse, out of heartache? This isn't simply the remorse of having been caught in their sin, but this is great mourning over the significance of what they've done. They have betrayed the very God of life and blessing who redeemed them from the nations. So we see that they have a mark of genuine repentance. They they are grieving over their sin. The second mark we see is they, they recognize their sin. What do I mean by recognize? They do not seek to hide their sin and keep it in the dark, but they bring it out into the light. They do not diminish the extent to what they have done, but they, but they call a spade a spade. We have broken faith with our God, and we have married foreign women from the people of the land. Unlike so many 
pastors who have been caught in scandals as of late, they do not try to excuse away their actions as, as misunderstanding or, or it's not really what it looks like. No, this is, this is a sign that they are truly understanding what they've done. They, they own up to their sin. The third mark of genuine repentance that we see with with the people of Israel is their recommitment to the Lord. They desire to commit themselves again to the Lord and bind themselves to his will. What we see here in verse 3, we see it says, Therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. In verses 3 and 4, they suggest covenanting and and even taking oaths, making oaths that that they will take action for their sin. This is more than a pinky promise. This is more than a swear. This is something far greater. They are taking an oath, making a covenant that they will act. That is the seriousness with which they are taking their repentance. We come to our our last mark of genuine repentance and an eagerness to deal with their sin. They aren't half-hearted, but they actually implore Ezra to do this. Verse four, for arise, for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. They want this to take place. They're eager to see this, this broken faith made right again. And they're, they're asking Ezra, their leader, to lead them. Be strong. Do it. Don't be afraid. We are with you. Lead us into genuine confession. So we see these, these four marks of genuine repentance. Grief, acknowledgement, recommitment, and eagerness. These are all vital aspects of deep, genuine confession, or what we in the church refer to as repentance. We're we're taught this in, in 2 Corinthians 7, where Paul says, and now I rejoice, not because you were made sorrowful, but because your sorrow, that is grief, led you to repentance. For you felt the sorrow that God had intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Consider what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, uh, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what zeal. What vindication in every way you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. We see there Paul describing the the marks of of genuine repentance, and and they map on very well to to what we've seen Israel has experienced. Repentance, deep confession, is a whole-personed response to sin by faith. When we see our sin and, and we recognize it for what it is, we realize what we have done, we, we confess it clearly with eagerness to make things right. We, we grieve over our sin. 
We seek to make the Lord's way our way once again. That is genuine repentance. And this is a key marker of what it means to be a confession culture. The seeds of repentance, though, need to blossom into obedience. But not just any obedience. You, you parents know this. There's two different kinds of obedience, right? There is cheap obedience and there's costly obedience. There's the obedience that comes whenever you ask your child to do something simple. Now throw this away in the trash. You know, clean off, your, clean off the table. You might be able to get those things past them pretty quickly without much of a fight, but then there's those kinds of, of obedience that requires quite a bit more, a costly obedience that is going to be hard. There's going to be a great deal of resistance. And genuine repentance always results into a costly obedience, a be- obedience that's willing to deal with the difficult things. And that, that obedience is really seen in verses 6 through 14 and, and 16 through 44. It's, it's most of the chapter. We see three actions of costly obedience that, that the Israelites take. The first of these is in verse 7. There we read, And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. We see their their costly obedience means that they need to gather together. That may not sound very costly at first, but look at the circumstances. You, You know how hard it is to get four people together for a meeting. Imagine all of Israel into one place. That would be significant. We also see that they're gathering the people within three days. Their eagerness means that, that they must take action and, and they're gathering in such a short time. Travel was not cheap then. It's not cheap now. It's, it was even more costly then to travel that time on such short notice without much preparation. And notice verse 9 talks about the time of year it was, the 20th day of the ninth month. You you may not be familiar with Israelite uh, climate patterns uh, throughout the year, but this would have been a difficult time because this is the time when the heavy rains came. The Israelites had been planting because of the, the softened soil, because of the lighter rains, But heavier rains were taking place now, such that it was difficult to stand. Imagine traveling in that, and you're thinking of all of Israel making their way to Jerusalem in that kind of weather. This would be challenging. It would be costly to gather together, and yet we see them make every effort to be there that all the assembly of Israel joins there. They are pursuing costly obedience that's coming from genuine repentance. We see also that they hold each other accountable. Look at verse 8. And that if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited. 
and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles, there would be a severe penalty. This penalty for for not attending, not coming to this gathering was steep. The the only other thing that they could throw at an Israelite at this point would be death. But instead, it's, it's a forfeiting of all of their goods, all that they owned, and then a banning of the assembly. They would be cut off if they are not going to participate in this repentance, in this culture of confession. They did not belong. They did not belong. You imagine this was costly for the Israelite who didn't come. This this would be costly for, for anybody who would lose a friend, a neighbor, someone who chose to, to stay home. That person now cut off from the people of Israel. To, to take that seriously, to impose that, would be costly. It might mean the loss of a brother or a sister, a parent, a dear friend, They cannot be a part of the covenant community. This is costly obedience driven by true repentance. And the third thing, the third action that they take is really a set of actions. They they develop concrete steps to deal with their sin. Ezra calls them to separate from their pagan wives. And the people are inclined to do it, but they recognize the difficulty of doing this under current conditions. But instead of saying, you know, Ezra, it's kind of raining hard, and we've been traveling three days, and there's a ton of us here, so why don't we just all go home and just sweep this under the rug? You know, you can trust me to handle this, Ezra. I'll, I'll, I'll deal with this. No, they, they develop a plan on how they will deal with this widespread sin. What we see They're going to have representatives, the leaders, inspect each city and each family, each tribe, to see has there been an intermarriage that has taken place. And they're going to deal with that systematically. And as Hannah Harrington notes in her commentary on Ezra, there were 113 cases of intermarriage, and yet despite that, The hearings were were conducted over three months, and the resolution of those took only a year. It it took time. They they took it serious, but they also were not dilly-dallying. You could imagine how something like this could, could take years, many years in our current court system, but but instead they, they they act with seriousness but also not hastily. These three actions display the costly obedience that, 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 is, that is blossoming from genuine repentance. So each step dealing with their sin took significant effort to do, and yet they were willing to do the hard thing and pursuing the righteousness before the Lord. And this is a reality of, of genuine repentance. It's always, it's always with costly obedience. John the Baptist's ministry helps us see this in, in Matthew 3. 
Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, that is John the Baptist, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So confession, but he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. He said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We see there that, that they are confessing with their mouths alone, but they're, they're not pursuing after a costly obedience. It's worth us taking a moment and reflecting, is, is this true of our church? Do we currently have a culture of confession? One where we grieve over our sin. One where we recognize it, even publicly. I've sinned grievously. I need to make amends. Do we encourage one another? Do we hold each other accountable? I'm not encouraging any of you to put each other out of the church. But are we holding each other accountable? Do we take our sin seriously as a church? This leads us to a significant question, one prompted by verse 15. Let's read that. It says, Only Jonathan, the son of Ashel, and Jaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Mishulam and Shebathai, the Levites, supported them. Four individuals opposed the action of Israel. They opposed this culture of confession, and we're not sure what the issue was. Maybe they thought the penalty was too severe, or maybe they thought the cost of travel was, was too hard. Maybe they didn't think the, the problem of intermarriage was that much of a problem at all. For whatever reason, they stood against this culture of confession. Really, verse 15 reveals the great tension that faces every church every instance of God's people, will we have a culture of confession or of complacency? Complacency will prefer what is easier. It'll allow things to continue on as normal, even those sins that we've grown accustomed to, maybe those generational sticky sins that we just become so used to, to challenge Sin in a culture is difficult. And that's the question. What sort of culture will we develop? The default, because of our sin, because of our hearts, by nature, will be to resign ourselves to complacency. We'll put up with the sin that we see in our lives and in others, so where is the hope for our church to be a culture of confession? Maybe you're wondering that for yourself. You've been a part of a church before and you're, you're thinking, I've never seen that. I don't know what you're talking about. Is this something that we need to muster up within ourselves? Do we just need to work harder, do better, take this more seriously? That wasn't the answer in ancient Israel. They needed a priest who would teach them and intercede for them. You might wish that, that you had your own Ezra, but friends, there is a greater priest who leads us into confession, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the great 
high priest of his people. As the book of Hebrews teaches us, Jesus always lives to make intercession for his people. He is the great high priest who has ascended into the heavens before the true throne of God. He entered in before the king and makes intercession for his people. Whereas Ezra confessed the sins of his people, Jesus bore the sins of his people on the cross. Whereas Ezra taught the people the word of God, Jesus is himself the word of God taken on flesh who leads his people even now, not just, not just in old, but throughout all time, in all places. And even now, he calls us, his church, to repent and to believe, not just as a first act of saving faith, but as a continual whole life reality developing this kind of culture, a culture of confession, is not about us. It's not about our cleverness. It's not about our conviction. It's not about our own grief. It's about the leading of our great high priest, Jesus. It's hard to be open about sin. Sin naturally wants to hide. It's afraid. It pushes you further from people instead of near it can be hard to ask each other difficult questions. Who, who likes being uncomfortable? I don't. I don't like those awkward conversations. Brother, that thing that you said was wrong. It was wrong. Brother, you need to repent. I'm with you. I know it. Life is busy can be hard to get together with others, right? I mean, even coming to evening worship, I mean, who goes to church twice on a Sunday? I mean, that's a bit much. Much less meet in the week with brothers and sisters in Christ to open the word together and confess sin. Don't you know? Don't you know I have a kid? Don't you know I have a job? Don't you know gas is expensive? I can't do that. It can be hard to meet with someone else and talk about your life. But here's the thing about sin. It's sticky. It's hard to deal with. And we have believed the lie of the culture that all we need is ourselves, our Bible, and Jesus. We need the church. We need each other if we are to battle the worldliness that clings so closely, that wants to take us down. The culture of the world is against us. And who are you to stand against it? Jesus has raised up his church to be a distinctive people in the world, that we would be a light to the nations, but he's also raised up his church that we would be a culture of confession, that sin would not cause us to, to stagnate and fall away in the faith but that we might be built up. Jesus gave us a church that we might grow, that we might repent. We need to be looking to the grace that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting in the grace that he provides in his church. 
He alone can help us to see the vileness of our sin. He alone can push us through the difficult actions we need to pursue in order to obey the law. If you, if you try to do this on your own, you can't do it. You need Christ. And Christ will drive you to his people. We need this, this one priest, this singular priest, to do this work in us individually and as a church so that we might develop this kind of culture at Redeemer. This may be hard to believe, but but when we read passages like James 5, where he says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. This is what we're talking about. Or the exhortation in Hebrews 3, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. It's only a heart hardened by sin that would say no. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a great high priest who has offered himself for the forgiveness of our sins that we might be reconciled to God, that our guilt might be dealt with. And he is leading us by his word and spirit to become a culture of confession. The question is, how will you respond? Will you take heart and trust Christ in where he's leading? Or will you continue in complacency, resign yourself to what is easy, and give yourself to the world? Let's go to our God now. Our Father, what a friend we have in Jesus. Lord, what a priest we have. So far better than Ezra. As faithful as Ezra was, Lord, Jesus is so far more faithful. Lord, he is so far more better. Lord, we pray that when we see sin in our lives, that we would not resign ourselves to it, but that we would know the power of our priest who is praying for us even now, who always lives to intercede, who offered himself freely for us. But Father, help us. Help us when we see sin in our brothers or sisters in Christ. Lord, remind us. Remind us that you you died for them too. That you are leading us together to make sin a, a serious matter that we deal with in our church. Lord, that we would truly be your holy people. That we would be seeking to, to live in greater obedience to your law, Lord. Help us to not excuse our sin, to minimize our sin, but to confess it. To confess it to those who, who know and understand and are fighting sin themselves. Lord, may it it be evident 
May it be evident to those who interact with us and, and maybe even come to Redeemer that they would see a people who, who desires to live in submission to you in all areas of our lives and that we would be your repenting people, not the people who have it all together, not the people who never sin, the people who are on our knees, grieving because of our, because of our sin, but finding joy in the redemption that you have accomplished in your son. Lord, may we go out in that, that, that tone, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.